0: Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of Classical Education. Today, we have a very, very special guest, somebody that has had a huge impact on me personally, and I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with John Muir Laws. Welcome to the show today.
1: Thank you so much. It's going to be really fun to talk with you again.
0: Yeah. I'd like you to introduce yourself to our listeners, and I'm sure quickly they'll understand if they have never heard of you, why I uh, have learned so much from you and- why I admire your work so much. And then we're gonna talk about how to help teachers with uh, them accessing the work that you do as well.
1: Absolutely. I am a scientist who is passionate about teaching people how to observe and how to learn. And the major tool that I use to do that is helping people use a nature journal. So a a sturdy notebook in which you put your, anything you notice, the questions that you ask, uh, the connections that you make, could even be your feelings uh, about whatever phenomenon you're observing. You get that all down on paper using words and pictures and numbers, so part of what I do is I teach people how to get better at writing in their journal, how to get better at drawing pictures or diagrams or maps of whatever it is that you see, how to get better at counting things or estimating things, so to use words, pictures, and numbers to record our observations, our questions, and the connections that we make. And what you get is you get it out of the electric meat inside your head, and onto a piece of paper in front of you. You're going to find that you can, uh, you've you've got a larger collection of, of of thoughts and ideas that your brain can dance with at one time. Working things out in your head is an incredibly inefficient and ineffective way to to think. And the way we think when we have a notebook open in front of us is profoundly different. And it's a skill that can be learned. And so I work at teaching that to kids, to adults, to anyone who will listen.
0: Yeah. So how did you get into this line of, of work?
1: When I was young, I... Uh, this was really before we had a really clear definition of what it was. I'm, I'm dyslexic. I still am dyslexic. And that was a real challenge for me uh, more than 50 years ago. And one of the ways I coped and survived was to carry a little notebook with me into the woods after school. Uh, I lived in the middle of San Francisco. And between school and home, There was Golden Gate Park, and I just wander through the park, look at trees, look at birds, look at squirrels and animals, and record everything that I noticed and observed down in this little notebook, drawing pictures of everything that I saw. And I found that it profoundly centered me, calmed me, and that for me, I think, was a major coping process. It turns out that that same skill set is essential for being a good observer, being a good scientist, and that it has served me well in other ways. And so as I've gotten older, I've only realized just more and more and more how essential this skill set is to, to being a thinking person alive on this planet and to help you pay attention to the world around you and to make the most of all the beautiful little moments that otherwise would just pass us by.
0: hmm how, how did your parents respond to this? I, I mean, I think you grew up in a home with parents who appreciated nature already, correct? Absolutely. So, so how, how did, I mean, it's, most kids aren't just going to go out into the woods and take a notebook and, and draw. Were your parents modeling this for you or did it just happen?
1: The first, the first notebook has a really beautiful little story behind it. And it has to do with paying attention to your kids. Our family was out on a flower walk, on a little botany expedition with one of our family friends. My, my parents had a friend who was a really serious botanist, and she would organize these, these field trips for people to go out and do, do botany. She would show up and help everybody with the botany. My mom organized all the logistics, and these were really fun. We're out in a beautiful wild place filled with wildflowers. And one of the people who came on the trip, was uh, uh, a, a woman named Neela Watley. And I saw that she had this little notebook with her. She had a little journal, of blank pages and a set of pencils. And she'd sit down and she would draw pictures of all the flowers that she saw. I, I was watching that. I thought, wow, that's really cool. And, and then she would pick up and she'd move on to the next flower. And what my mom saw is that I became Neela's shadow
0: Oh, that's really
1: neat. (laughs) Everywhere that she went, I would like pick up and I'd just walk around with her and she'd sit down. I'd sit down next to her and watch what she did. So the next time we went out for a little family adventure in nature, my mom said, hey, honey, come around to the back of the car here. I've got something for you. And she opened up the hood of the car and inside was exactly the same kind of journal, the same kinds of pencils, the same tools that Nila had used. And I knew just what to do with them. And so it gave mom a big hug and grabbed the journal and went running off into the fields. And it, the rest is history.
0: That is really neat. Do you remember how old you were?
1: I, I don't. I, I could probably reconstruct it by looking through old family photographs. But I would guess I was, it could have been eight or ten.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is really a beautiful story. Um, and and I have to just before we get into the nitty-gritty of nature study, your your name. I, I know that some of our <laughs> listeners are gonna go, okay, John Muir Laws, were you named after John Muir's? Tell us this story about your name.
1: It is really fun. Um yeah, mm-hmm. uh, my my parents named me John Muirlaws. So it's not a pen name to I wrote a field guide about the Sierra Nevada and some people think, oh, you must have changed your name. Like too, but no, really, that's what mom and dad named me, and um, so if they did name you that, it's fair to use it on the cover of your book.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: the uh, the but the backstory behind it is that I'm not really named after John Muir. Um, it's Muir after, after Ethel Muir, who raised my dad, and was an incredibly strong. Um, a woman at a, at a difficult time in the Depression who took care of somebody else's kid and just raised him to be a man. And um, so whether I was going to be a boy or a girl, my middle name would have been Mir. And that's in honor of Ethel. And after I was born, my parents <laughs> for a long time couldn't figure out what to give me for a first name. I think I actually I left the hospital still with my name was officially Baby Boy Laws. And... <laughs> The, uh, but uh, um, Jack, uh, John nicknamed Jack is what my grandfather on my mom's side went by. And uh, one of my mom's friends eventually wrote her a letter and said, enough of this. You've got to name that kid. And I suggest that you name him John Muir Laws. And, but I think that you should call him as a nickname Jack And apparently she had beautiful script, one of those people who really worked on their penmanship. And she wrote out in this big flourish, Jack Laws. And then she wrote, I think it sounds like a stagecoach driver. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom thought thought like, oh, wow. And boom, that was it. Uh, So I either would take up a career in natural history or driving a stagecoach. And since the stagecoach business is not just kind of going through a bust right now, I became a (laughs) natural.
0: I love that. And you go by Jack. That's Everybody
1: what calls me Jack. Year. Yeah, that's Jack. right. Um, because yeah. it's so much shorter than John.
0: Yeah. So let's get into some of this uh, nitty gritty of nature study. Because some of our listeners, uh, nature, they don't know how to do nature study, or they're afraid of nature study. They're afraid of yeah. nature journaling. They're not artists. Uh, they're parents who are busy. They're teachers who are busy. And I always say, You really, really need to prioritize nature study in your schools. Every school I work with, every parent I work with, you have to be getting them outside for fresh air. Even if you can do your math lessons outside, do them outside. Get outside when the weather is nice. But you've got to prioritize doing some nature studying and nature journaling. And I know that this is a huge fear or um, even just not even necessarily a fear for some people. It's just like, I don't have time. That's like extra. But I know and you know that it's not extra and that it lays the foundation for how to be and think like a scientist Ah. so that when you study formal science in high school, you actually can learn it because you have this foundation. So talk to our listeners about the foundations that nature study and nature journaling lays for a child
1: uh, with, with, with pleasure, but let's let's break it into two parts. The first is sure. why nature, and the second is why journaling. Love. and it. so why nature? There is a vast and growing amount of of research and evidence about the impact of being in nature on our physical health and our mental health and um, our ability to work together with each other. Uh, If you have not read the book and you're a parent or an educator, run, don't walk to the nearest library and get yourself a copy of Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. It is a uh, very richly referenced, resourced, researched book on the impact of being in nature on being a kid. And psychologically, we've got all of these, these like, you know, if, if, if you're a teacher, you've had that, that ADHD kid who sits in your class, they can't sit still in their chair. Mm. If you've ever gotten them out into the field, like, like that's the lizard finder, right? Yes, um,
0: that's me. I'm ADHD and that was me. I'm still yeah. like that, yeah.
1: When I used to work at a at a at a residential outdoor school, every week I would get a different set of kids, and because I had um, better kind of group management techniques than a lot of the the peers that I had, they would often give me let's put this in air quotes the problem kids, right? And teachers would often say like, okay, you've got Jeremy and Samantha in your group. I just want to let you know. Ugh. They're they're just, they're a handful. They're trouble. And I warned them both before they came up here three strikes, and we're sending you home. And on the bus ride here, they each got two strikes. So you give us the word, and they're out of here. And I'd just say, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me know. And then secretly go away, like, oh, good. I've got some of these kids. And invariably, (laughs) these are the kids that are just, you know, a a child is not a sitting animal. Um, We're, 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 we're running around tree climbing, um, adventure beasts and being out in nature gives us, gives us the place and the opportunity to, to let that better part of our nature shine. Um, so people have uh, all sorts of, um, psychological challenges are are less when we're in the presence of, of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, physically, if we're have time to kind of run around in the woods and, you know, we're, we're active, we're much more active, um, more so than if we're playing professional sports. Well, maybe the exception would be soccer, but, um, but when we're out in the woods by ourselves as kids, we're also like, we're, we're learning social, emotional skills. We're, we're figuring out how to what's an acceptable risk and how to fall down and how to get back up and learning our own limits and kids who have opportunities to play in nature and make their own those own their own judgment calls are better able to resist peer pressure when they 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 hit it a little bit later in school there's all sorts of benefits and those are really richly described in The Last Child for the Woods book. Another resource I want to point parents and educators towards is the Children in Nature Network, uh, which is an organization uh, helping us get our youth outdoors, and the, they have on that website a research portal where all the different journal articles, including the ones that have just been published, that are any relevancy on this, they're easily sorted. You can do a quick search and you can find things that are relevant to you explaining the benefits of getting ourselves out into the world. So for our physical health, for our mental health, um, our social-emotional development, Mm -hmm. it's really, really powerful. It's it's important. Mm -hmm. And as a science educator... Out there, you run into any there's, – there's, there's a million different phenomena that you can play with to observe and explore. In the science classroom, you have to bend over backwards to you know catch a bunch of pill bugs and put them in cups and then take these Dixie cups and bring them into the classroom and say, look, I found an animal. Let's observe it. But out there, you roll over a rock and it's all happening. What's going to be under the next rock? There are, There's right. just infinite – wonderful phenomena and what we're trying to do as science educators is put people in front of phenomena that are interesting and give them the tools to observe it and to start to figure stuff out from what we're seeing. The way we used to teach science is we would stick you in a classroom and somebody else would come up with an experiment. We'd give you a cookbook set of instructions on how to do it and um, what we learned is from, from teaching kids this way is that we weren't training kids to be scientists. We were training them to be lab technicians who could follow somebody else's directions, but not come up with their own questions, not be able to look at a phenomenon, figure out how you can figure stuff out by looking at right. it.
0: Right. Right.
1: And that's where the journaling comes in because a piece of paper can hold much more information than your electric meat. The brain sitting between your ears can hang on to about seven different ideas, plus or minus two at a time. You get more than that. It's pushing something out to make room for the next thing. We cannot – like you want complexity? You can't handle complexity. None of us can, but the piece of paper can. The piece of paper is this wonderful analog brain adjunct. That allows us to notice much more because you notice something, you put it down on the paper, and notice something, you put it down on the paper, and notice something, you put it down on the paper. All of a sudden, you've got all these observations staring back at you. And those then generate questions. So we start to write our questions down. If you don't write down your question, what happens is you come up with a little question, you go like, huh? And then your brain goes, well, let's forget that because. Um, I, it's not going to be essential for my survival, so you'll lose all these interesting questions. But you start writing those down with your observations and writing mm-hmm. down your 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 the connections that you make. Like this is sort of like this other thing, but it's different in this way. So we we teach these practices, uh, which we call I notice observation, I wonder curiosity and questioning. It reminds me of which is making connections between things. So I notice. I wonder what it reminds me of is this little mantra that we do as we are nature journaling, to train ourselves to be better observers, more curious people, and to be able to uh, practice making connections between things that we know or have seen before or have read about and what we're currently looking at. And by weaving those sorts of webs, that's how we make meaning. That's how we make knowledge. That's And also, this is all knowledge that is in the context of the evidence for it. If we just teach kids, like, here's a bunch of facts, I want you to remember, memorize these things about science. We're not teaching, or that means it's easy to test that. And that's why we've taught that way a lot, because that approach is easy to test. But it is not good for thinking. What I want to do to think is, I want to have ideas and claims and see those in a context. A right. bubble of, of evidence that supports that claim, and so you end up with this thing like you know do you, um, you know do you believe the earth is round? <clears throat> well then somebody says yes okay why do you believe that? Well because everybody told me it is, cool, huh? <laughs> well um, what 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 you've got there is a claim that is out of context with the evidence. And what we want to say, like, do you believe this, you know, whatever statement and for the student to kind of say, like, I have, you know, 70 percent confidence in that because of the level of the evidence that I have for that. So the idea then that for teaching people to think like scientists, what we're teaching Mm -hmm. people to do is to not just sort of blindly believe in something because somebody else in authority said so. But with any idea, we're going to hold that in proportion to the strength of the evidence for it. That's a different way of thinking.
0: Yeah, and this is actually very much in line with the classical trivium, the grammar, logic, and rhetoric. When we're learning something new and we're recording that and naming it and logic, we're asking the questions. We're having a dialectical conversation in our own brain <laughs> or with one another. Yes. and we're and then we're we're actually recording it and talking about it and that goes into when you're beginning to do the more presenting what you have found now you're going into rhetoric right to to present and persuade here's the evidence so it's very much nature nature journaling nature study is very important for a very solid classical education experience in the true sense of how the trivium operates
1: and and I I agree with that. And I'm going to add something to that. The imp- also the important thing here is not this idea of of presenting a persuasive argument for something. We're not just we're we're trying not to kind of have somebody who's just good at the process of argument right. for argument's sake. But what they what they're able to do is they're able to say here is evidence that I see. Here are the logical connections that I use to fit those together, that leads me to this conclusion that I, and I can say, I hold this conclusion for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And in the place of, in the, of different evidence, I'm willing to change my mind.
0: Yes, exactly. And this also ties into an education in the true, the good, and the beautiful, which all of our classical schools on their websites claim we educate in the true, the good, and the beautiful. Well, nature study helps you do that. You're learning you're learning truths, you're learning and studying things that are good and beautiful, and you're learning what beauty is, that, that, that you're going out there and you're seeing what's beautiful and making those connections. And um, I want to comment to your your uh, framework, your curiosity framework that I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. I That is so brilliant. I got that from a conference I attended that you spoke at in Maryland many years ago, and I have used it for so many things when I train teachers on how to talk about poetry. Mm. Let's just talk about what we notice, what we wonder, what it reminds me of. Before we go into anything else, it's more important that we're approaching poetry from a, uh, a poetic experience. We want to have that poetic experience with nature, with poetry, with things that we're reading and studying. And, and that framework just sets up a great... Uh, poetic experience for education, even in listening to music and and learning to hear uh, music and have a music appreciation, looking at beautiful art and having art appreciation, that framework works just wonderfully for all of that. Um, I also want to share with my listeners something that happened to me that changed me dramatically. I was at your session and uh, in the morning you were sending, uh, sending us off in groups of three. And you, you told us, okay, there's a lot of dew outside today, so I want you to go out and look for one dewdrop on a leaf or on a blade of grass with your partners, and talk like study it together and talk about what you notice and what you wonder. What does it remind you of? And then we'll come back and share. So I was with two other people and we found a, a dew drop on a on, on a leaf that we decided we were going to study together. So we sat. Quietly looked at this dewdrop, and I was on the right side, and there was somebody in the middle, and another person on the left side. We were all staring at it, and then we started talking about what we noticed. And it was interesting because we were talking about reflections that we saw in the dewdrop. And when I was describing what I saw in the dewdrop, it was completely opposite of what the person on the other side of the dewdrop saw. Mm. And I was like, that's not what I see. And so we were like, let's switch places. So we switched places, and then I saw what she saw, and she saw what I saw, and bam, I had my lesson in perspective. Uh, in, in, in in how nature study teaches you to have a conversation with a person that may have a different perspective.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> if, if only we could teach ourselves to do that in everything that we do. How can we have a conversation with each other? How can we learn to see something through somebody else's eyes, not with the goal of making them like us, but with the goal of truly understanding them and them understanding us? And from there, is it possible if we truly understand each other and respect that, that we could treat each other with disdain, with with, with unkindness? I don't think so.
0: Right. Um, And go ahead, keep going. Uh, Well, I just think that uh, classical education, if it is going to be an education in the beautiful and the good, it ought to, the telos of a classical education ought to always be that a student ends their graduating as a person who cares deeply about other people mm-hmm. and about, about the world they live in and about things and about everything. And that their, their world should be so enlarged that they have a real deep sense of care, respect, and responsibility. And I don't think that there is any other academic subject in a classical education that, does that, that prepares students for this as well as nature study. That's a really bold statement for me to say, but I feel so passionate about nature study, and this is why I asked you to be on the show today, because I really want our teachers, our headmasters, our parents to understand that even now, probably now more than ever, how important this is, because kids aren't getting it, the more screen time they have, the more nature they need, Um mm-hmm. And, and so I, I just I really wanted to I'm getting on a soapbox here. <laughs> I really wanted to emphasize how important it does shape our character.
1: And the to, just to pick up on a, on a on a thread of what you were saying there, we want that child to care. We want the learning that they have to be relevant. And here's how nature journaling ties into that. For a long time, I've been working in environmental education and nature study, and what I wanted to do is, as my goal, I wanted to help kids fall in love with the natural world around them. And in order to do that, I needed to come up with a working definition of what is love. So if I'm working to try to help people fall in love with the world, well, what am I really talking about? So the little scientist in me decided to, I'm going to go to find love. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I actually think I've got something useful. And here it is. Love is sustained, compassionate attention. The act of sustained, compassionate attention. And it is hard to do. It is hard to pay attention and attention and attention and attention. Um, And the act of attention, think about sort of the act of attention with your child and how that changes your relationship with them. Right? The... um, uh, with 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 your partner, your husband, your wife, or attention to a place, how a place that you come to know deeply, you fall in love with that place through the time of spending attention with them. And in this definition, I'm not talking about the sort of the falling in love thing. That's more a trick of our neurochemistry to get us to pair bonds long enough to continue the species. but but think about sort of the 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 the, the deep love that comes of growing and knowing over time. And it's the acts of attention. If you're able to close your laptop and say, I'm sorry, honey, I wasn't really listening. Could you please say that again? Um, um, or let me repeat back to you what, what I think you heard, because what you're saying is, is important to me. And I wanna really understand. Like that, that deepens your relationship. It's mm-hmm. the act of attention that causes us to love one another, nature, place, the world that we live in. But paying attention is difficult. And we have the subjective experience that if my eyes are open, I'm paying attention enough. But we can learn skills to deepen our ability to pay attention. And what that does is deepens our ability to fall in love.
0: Oh, that is so good. I love that. I know I recently piggybacking on that, I have found something that has helped me in my communication with my husband. Um, sometimes I'll be answering emails around Facebook and he'll start talking to me and I'll realize I'm not listening and you know he'll get frustrated. And so I have learned this new habit of saying, okay, wait, can you wait just one minute? Because I really want to attend well mm-hmm. to what you're sharing with me. And I just need one minute to finish this and then I will attend. And that has been a really, I think a really good new habit that I've been doing that seems to be helping, helping us because, you know, we're also busy. We've got these little phone gadgets that mm-hmm. keep that that really are in the way. And we want to have conversations with the people we're living with, but we always have these little phone gadgets in our hand.
1: Yeah. And and <laughs> uh, those those tech companies have figured out that the most powerful commodity that What they want from you is all they are competing for is your attention. Mm -hmm. How can I keep you on this app just a little bit longer? Right. Right. They want your attention. That is your most precious commodity, more so than your time, your attention. That's Mm -hmm. what they're after. And that is what our children deserve. Uh, I'll tell you a story that is parallel to what you said with, with your husband, um, this um when i was early in being a parent my oldest daughter was then just recently kind of learned to kind of walk and was was toddling around and she has a favorite stuffed animal named chuck which is sort of a chicken sort of a duck we couldn't figure out which so that's why it's chuck so (laughs) she's got chuck now if you hold chuck by the head and you wave chuck's feet back and forth side to side Um, It looks like Chuck is dancing, and she discovered this, and she was really, really proud of this, and she was really excited about it. I was working on some project at my desk, typing away, and uh, she came into the room. She could walk at this point, because I remember her eyes were just at table level. She's got Chuck, and she says, she says, she says, Papa, she says, look at what Chuck can do. She says, look at Chuck. And I kind of, out of the corner of my eye, I'm looking at Chuck. And there's this stuffed duck chicken thing with the feet wobbling back and forth. And I go like, oh, that's great, honey. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. Mm-hmm. And, and I am, I'm thinking, like, I got to kind of go. I got to, like, this is, I got to do my project. Like, and there's this duck. Right? And then all of a sudden, these two tiny, tiny little hands, her little hands, she stretches them out between my hands and the keyboard. Oh. I look over and down a little bit, and she's looking straight into my eyes. And she's looking up at me with these, these, these crystal clear child eyes. And she says she says, No papa, no mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I mean, that was a moment that went through me uh, uh, like an uh, an electric shock. And what she was saying is, you're not paying attention. I know you're not paying attention. Right. You know you're not paying attention. You know I know you're not paying attention. And, honey, that's not love. Right. And what, I need, what I need is the gift of your love, of your attention. No mm-hmm. And we realize that we're giving mm-hmm to so much of the world around us, the, 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 the beautiful moments that we're in. You know, if we're there, if part of your brain is there on your phone, <clears throat> no, mm-hmm. we got to learn how to put that aside and be there and be present and to pay attention to this moment, to this child, to your partner, to your husband, to your wife, to the person who you don't know and 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 but you're now in their presence and you're speaking with them how can i pay attention to that moment that has never happened before on the history of the planet this has never happened before and here we are face to face and i have the gift of being present with you no mhm
0: yeah that that's really good that's really good Um, nature journaling helps us to learn the habit of attending. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It is. Go ahead.
1: It's not about how the journal looks. It's not about whether it's got pretty pictures in it. It is not about whether you're writing poetry like Mary Oliver. It is a tool in service of your attention it's a tool it. to help you attend to the world around you and it doesn't matter how it looks or how it sounds or how it's spelled it's about the experience of paying attention and it's if it facilitates you paying attention to the world around you it has served its job and it doesn't need to look pretty and 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 it and it doesn't need to to be anything other than that um one of the big reasons why people don't do this process is that they're thinking to themselves I, if I'm going to journal, I should do something that looks like a, you know, a, a, right. a, a country diary of an, an awardian lady, right? Yes. It, it <laughs> needs to be pretty. It needs to be, yeah. um, or if I'm going to write a poem, it needs to be um, publishable. Uh, it And so I'm not worthy. I'm not an artist. I'm not a poet. I'm not a nature writer. I'm not... Um, I, I I am not words worth So what are my words worth, right? Right. Uh, and because we're 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 not thinking about it as this tool, we're thinking about it that the it's I need to have something that is a good journal. No, you need to be in the presence of this experience, and the journal will help you do that. It helps take all that chatter and just helps you be right here, right now that's what the journal does. That's the the greatest power of the journal is to put you in the presence of whatever is is before you. And it'll help Mm -hmm. you remember that. Mm -hmm. Um, An interesting sort of sidecar of this is that if in these journals, if you end up using a lot of diagrams and pictures, you're going to get better at making diagrams and pictures. If you end up using a lot of writing in your journal, you'll get better at writing. If you use a lot of calculations and math and quantification, you're going to get better at counting things and quantifying things and estimating things and seeing the Mm -hmm. numbers that are in the beautiful world around you. Um, The journaling skill set is completely learnable. This includes Mm -hmm. how to draw pictures. This includes how to write from your brain and from your heart. Um, All these things can be learned, but very often people will say, oh, but I'm not an artist, therefore journaling, which is about making a, usually when we're drawing a picture, why are you drawing this picture? Because I'm trying to make a pretty picture. That's not the reason that we're drawing when we're in our journals. We are drawing to be in presence, in the presence of this flower, not to have something that represents this flower that we hang on our living room wall.
0: I'd like to take a brief break from this interview just to tell our listeners about some upcoming events. One of my main goals is to immerse our followers into the beauty of good teaching through practical workshops. Experience a two-hour workshop that will help you discover what it feels like to be a student participating in a classical lesson. We have just launched a list of new workshops and book seminars for this fall. Some of our courses include a book study on Leisure, the Basis of Culture, led by Dr. Reno Loro, our expert in a mythopoeic education. Karen Glass will be leading a workshop on written narrations. Lindsay Peterson has just launched our new Snapshots of Great Conversation series, covering significant voices in the great conversation from ancient times to the present. I'll be teaching a few practical courses on narration. And our master teacher, Mark Signorelli, by popular demand, is reoffering his course on a mimetic approach to poetry. Coming soon, Dr. Gary Hartenberg professor from Houston Christian University will be offering a two hour workshop on reading and discussing Plato's Mino. That course is coming soon. So make sure you check our website for up-to-date course lists. You can visit us at beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Again, beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. You can also just get there from our website, beautifulteaching.com. Thank you for listening. And now let's return to the show. Yeah. So it seems to me that teachers need to be very, uh, intentional of communicating to students what the journal is for. I mean, it's really, it's going to help order their affections to help them become more human and more loving, more, more attentive, um, Mm -hmm. more thoughtful, but at the same time, one of the, you know, the million dollar question I get asked every time I do any kind of teacher training, when I talk about something like nature study or narration, well, how do we grade it? Because the parents oh, want grades. And I'm right. constantly <laughs> saying, okay, so parent, so, so this is, is my shout out. My shout out yep. right now to parents is you need to get over it. Like parents need to stop caring so much about the grades. And teachers, yes, there are things you can do to grade a nature journal. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Jack, but I have. I, do you have any thoughts on grading nature journals?
1: I I, I do. But first, let's kind of break down okay. the grade. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the why do the the reason that we have grades? There's there's a the, grading is is really nuanced and really kind of complicated. But it's it's interesting to sort of think about like why is it that we want grades? Um, part of the reason there, there 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 are many reasons um some of the the nicest are that it helps us sort of see where somebody is in their process and helps us figure out what is the next step for them on that journey they're usually not used that way um <laughs> the a, another sort of nice way of framing um uh, framing things is to figure out um, who needs support where, and so that we can we can we can give that support to somebody. And they're usually not used that way. <laughs> um, sometimes grades um, are used as a punitive thing that uh, you will be shamed into working harder because it is dishonorable to get a low grade, and. Mm. You'll see them used that way regularly. Um, another thing is that if we want to put ourselves into little hierarchies with some people on the top and some people on the bottom, it is one way of quantitatively doing that. Not necessarily accurate, but it is quantitative. And, you know, you got 98 and you got an 82, right? And um, for 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 systems that um want to you know you know reward the alpha these are convenient mm-hmm. um for a lot of parents what we want is we just like we like we'd like please some indication of like where are we relative to other people um is my child struggling um we're kind right. of like is 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 there a problem here or is this kind of you know, within the norm of, of kind of what's, what's going on here, if there's a problem there, do I need to do something differently? Right. Um, and then you think of like, what, I, I was asking any parent who's listening right now, what for you with your child is the most important thing of all, right? What is the most important thing that you want your child to get out of their education? Mhm. I'm guessing that whatever came to your mind is hard to test. That's right. The more real things are, the more nuanced they are, the more the more the harder they are to test. The more valuable something is, the harder it is to test.
0: That's so good. And yeah. and and
1: so we what are we looking at here? We're looking at um, at we. the journal is there to help us think and help us pay attention. If I want to see if my child, how are they thinking and how are they paying attention, the journal is actually your best tool to seeing how they are thinking. You open it up The journal is their brain on paper. They're putting all their ideas, their thoughts, their connections, their questions down on paper. So you're Mm -hmm. teaching them just to do this brain dump onto paper. And you look at the journal of of a child who's been doing this and it's like reading their mind. You can see exactly what they saw exactly what was meaningful to them, exactly what they picked up on, the kinds of questions that they asked, it's all looking back at you from this piece of paper. So for you to do a qualitative assessment of what they are learning and what they are noticing, it's extremely easy to do that looking at the journal. It's their brain on paper, it's this incredible gift. Where else does somebody lay out for you? Here's my, here's my thinking process and everything that I observed, right? Now, if you want to take that kind of complex, new and nuanced mash of things and turn that into a number between zero and a hundred, that you can then connect with an A, a B, a C, a D, or an F, right? That gets more difficult. You can do it. So what 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 I what when 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 people insist on having a grade, um I recommend having a um, uh, you c- you can create a simple rubric.
0: Yes, that's and, what we do. yeah
1: and 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 the rubric says I want there I want you to ask at least two questions. I on this piece of paper, I want there to be a uh, some information about the location you are, the date and the weather, some metadata. Yeah. On this piece of paper, I would like to see you. Um, you're, let's say you're teaching a, some little skill, like kind of magnifying something. Right? How do you how do you kind of zoom in on something? Um, I would like to see one drawing or diagram that is something at life size, and it should be labeled. And I mm-hmm. want to see two levels of zooming in on it. So something that you're going to show a little bit larger, and something where you're really, really going to get in there.
0: Mm-hmm, and
1: mm-hmm. for each of these things, two points. You do all these things, right. you get full points. And then this little rubric becomes something where they can look at it and it reminds them, oh, if I want to get full points, do I have two zoom-ins? No, I did one. Okay, I'm going to do another. Then I'm going to get full points. But we're not trying to say, like, are your questions better than Sally's? Um, Are Right. Right? So yes, they can self-grade these things.
0: Right. That's really good. Yeah, and and don't give them a rubric that says, uh, oh, what is it, like? Uh, they, like, it, if it only has this, then it's a level one. If it, But if it has all of these things, then it's, like, worth four points or whatever. I can't remember what kind of rubric that is. But just tell them exactly what you want them to have in it. Yeah. In and that, so 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 yeah, you, can think of,
1: yeah. Yeah, you can think of the rubric as just, like, if you said, like, here's what we're going to do for the next um, uh, 45 minutes. And uh, and I put just sort of a little checklist down on you on know, a piece of paper. It's a little reminder. Yeah. This is what I expect yes. of you. Exactly. And yeah. Because people are there, they're saying like, "Oh my gosh, we're going to be graded on this. I better kind of do it." It's then another little like that fear of the grading, you know? It's right. people will will do it. So it, it can be useful, but we're, we we what what we don't do. Here's what we don't do: is you don't kind of walk around and just look for which journal has the prettiest picture in it, and that kid right. gets a hundred points, um, right. or the kid whose spelling is off you get nine points, right? Right. Um, It's not about the pretty picture. It's not about how you're spelling it. It's about the ideas, not the art. It's about the ideas and the thinking, not the mechanics of writing. There's a different place for looking at helping somebody with their spelling and their grammar and their punctuation. Right. There's a different place for how do we um, kind of get good shading on a drawing of a sphere. In, in an art class, I'll teach that and give feedback on it. In the context of nature journaling, I'm interested in their thinking and their ideas. And we get that down on the paper. Um, and similarly, when you, as a, as an adult, as a, as you, when you look at their journal page, we have to train ourselves not to... Normally what you do is a kid holds up their journal and say, oh, honey, that's beautiful. What a gorgeous picture of that flower. That, that's a tree. I mean, that tree... Um, and and then, you know, so what we do is we start, we kind of go into, oh, good job. You did a pretty picture. And right. in this, we're telling them straight up, hey, this isn't about the pretty picture. This is about your ideas. And so when we're giving feedback to them, we want to go like, oh, I noticed that you made this observation. That's a really interesting observation. I noticed you asked this question. Huh. Here's a question I have about your question. Right? You can you can engage to the you you kind of engage with their I notices, I wonders, and it reminds me of mm-hmm. using your I notices, I wonders, and it reminds me of, and that's really different than saying good job, pretty picture, because you you think to yourself, but 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 you know, seeing pretty picture, this is positive reinforcement, and then the kid like, but let's really let's kind of break, just want to break that down a little bit because you're telling them it's not about the pretty picture. There's some kids in your group who now take the risk because you said it's not about pretty picture. And then you get it back and the first thing you're doing is you're saying good job pretty picture. Right. So the kid goes like, "Oh. So this really was about the pretty picture all along and that was just one of these grown-up tricks."
0: <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah, is you, a really important message for teachers. I'm really glad you're, you're defining yeah. this because this is a big deal.
1: And, and who's the kid who brought you their, their picture the, the first? It's the one who always gets positive strokes for the pretty picture. And they're back at the tap to get another hit of that, right?
0: Sure, right. And
1: over on the side, listening, there's another kid who actually went out of their comfort zone drew some pictures and diagrams, but they're not one of the, what they call like, you're not the art kid in the class, but they're using, they're training themselves. They're starting to train themselves to do visual thinking. And then you hear them, you say to this one kid, oh, what a good job. You did a pretty picture. And they say, well, thank you very much. This is just another grown-up trick. You got me this time. See if you get me the next one. Right. And your credibility's out the door.
0: Oh man. And this is how we crush students. This is how we crush them.
1: But what's weird about that is that our intention was good, right? Right, exactly,
0: we, exactly. I mean, like all I did was to say good job, I
1: was just being positive. And it's, this is the same thing with kind of, um, when we're teaching kids about growth mindset. If I say to the kid, oh honey, you're so good at math. You're so good at math, I'm really proud of you. you. You did such a great job on this, you're really good at math. What I'm doing is I'm saying, here's a, a fixed trait. You have this characteristic, which we'll call good at math. Right? Mm. And, well, that's, 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 that's interesting. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting because um, if I'm good at this, that means that there is also bad at this. And the, well, the last thing they want to do is to kind of hit the boundary of where they're no longer good at math, you you went back and you kind of double checked this way. You know those are strategies that mathematicians do all the time, and they are, it's it's ah uh, it's those are u- really useful thinking strategies. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, what they do is they say to those kids, hey, for part two of this test, um, there are two piles of paper here. In pile number one, they are questions just like what you did. And um, in in pile number two, there are some ones in there that are a little bit more difficult, but they are kind of interest. There's some interesting kind of problem-solving ones in there as well. Um, And you can pick whichever one you want for part two. Those kids who you gave the fixed mindset to, you're good at math. The last thing that they want to do is to disappoint you more importantly than than that they don't want to disappoint themselves and they don't want to come to the edge of their not good at math they grab from pile number one the ones that are just like the things that they did and those ones who you gave um, feedback about their process and growth mindset related comments those kids will dare to pick up papers from number two just because of the growth or fixed mindset feedback that those researchers did just for a minute or so um, before they picked up their test.
0: Yeah, I think that that study was recommend, was in the article I read too. That's great. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's a, we could do a whole podcast just on growth mindset.
1: <laughs> oh, it, it, it is it is such a critical <laughs> idea. If your kids get the growth mindset idea, then it makes sense to try on, to try on the things that are hard. Yeah. But if you have a fixed mindset, it makes total sense to stop and give up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. Let me just ask, I know we're talking about nature study. We're getting close on our time here real quick though, just to help our listeners on this uh, growth mindset versus you said fixed mindset. Yep. Okay. So what an example, what, what an example of uh, like a a parent or a teacher thinking, Oh, my student has, uh, they learn through, auditory or they learn through mm. sensory or they're learning gifted at learning vision yeah the learning styles is learning styles kind of that fixed mindset
1: nope um so let's let's unpack that there's there's several things here one is that there is this idea that kids um, you should figure out a kid's learning style and then right. design their curriculum and how they around learn it. around that and this was an interesting hypothesis that was raised was not based on any evidence, and there's now been a bunch of research looking at learning styles, and we find that it is a it's not a helpful concept or idea for us okay, okay um, and to and we actually if you kind of then shoehorn somebody into one way of of, of learning something, you're going to make their learning more difficult. That mm-hmm. for all of us, we're going to actually benefit from, we, we, we might enjoy looking at pictures more than other things, right? Um, but as far as our ability to learn, um, kind of trying to figure out a kid's learning style and then tailoring their education to that is 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 not... Is not evidence-based it's it's not recommended right. there' there's there was it was an, it was an interesting hypothesis and kind of cool um mm-hmm. I, I would say though that for all of us if we can get the same concept through a bunch of different angles we'll be able to wrap our heads around it better
0: right right so well we want to we want to in a classical education we should be focused on educating the whole person which means multi-sensory we want to the whole poetic experience, poetic teaching is multisensory. It's all of it. I know I'm very weak auditory. I have a hard time listening to audiobooks. I thought to myself, well, I need to strengthen that area of my life. So I've been listening to audio, audiobooks and I'm getting better and better and able to listen to more and more. But I have an auditory processing disorder. Oh. So it's very hard for me. Now, if I had been but But schooled, I'm going just,
1: just in, in yeah. interrupt there because you are in that demonstrating a growth mindset. You, what you're saying what you you had a mindset that this is something that is challenging for me. Why don't I lean into it and I'll get better at it? As exactly. opposed to the fixed mindset says I'm no good at this, therefore I can't do this, therefore I won't do this and therefore you can't do it because right. you don't do it. but you chose to do this and your brain is continuing to grow and change because of those challenges that you're giving it.
0: Right. That's kind of why I was thinking that the learning styles might be a fixed mindset example, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if you pigeonhole a student into they're this type of learner and that's how you're teaching them, then you're kind of going in the fixed mindset aspect because they're now not getting strengthened in the other areas that they may be weak in.
1: And, and you've also created the self-fulfilling prophecy right? that I'm not going to teach oh, you right. through these other uh, modes, so you're not going to develop in those areas. What right. the, all the, the research on learning shows is that through repetition and effort and continuing to work at things and through productive struggle, we physically change the shape of our brains. We're stitching together new little sets of neurons. The first time you try to do something and it's hard, your brain goes like, oh, that hurt. And then you try to do it again and your brain goes, oh, man, this again. And then you try to do it again and your brain goes like, really? Oh, man. Okay. You keep you keep doing this thing. And so I guess we're going to have to stitch together a few neurons to um, create create a few little synapses in honor of kind of Processing whatever this is. and then the next time you do it, it's a little bit easier because your brain physically changed its shape. All learning is physically changing the shape of your brain
0: that is amazing. That is and, so cool
1: and it and it doesn't stop it It happens through as you're doing this now with your audit with your books on tape, and mm-hmm. at all ages, this is what 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 happens with us. All learning is is doing this. and if you, Um, but if you have the fixed mindset, then you, then if you find that something is difficult for you, this means this is something that you can't do. This means it's a threat. It's something to be avoided and, and don't, don't go that way anymore. And this is just, it's this totally different way of thinking. And also like if, if somebody else is good at this thing and you're bad, then like they're a threat to you. Or somebody's giving you advice about something, but I just can't do this. You're annoyed at them for trying to help you with this thing that you can't do. But if you've got a growth mindset, you're like, "Oh, how, like, oh, how are you doing this?" Like, "Oh, what's, what's going on there with that?" Let me take a "Oh, I see that. Thank you for helping me with that. The the way we respond to feedback, the way we respond to all these different things completely changes whether we have this growth or this fixed mindset. And teaching journaling, nature journaling and nature study through the journal is also an interesting way of teaching growth mindset because you've got two things going on in the journal. One is the number of pages that you fill shows how much work you've been putting into this. It's a document that records the work that you have put in doing this. And also you can look at the start of the journal and see what kind of questions you were asking or, or how you were making maps. And you can compare that to now.
0: Right, like, right.
1: Ah, I've changed. I've gotten better at this. And here's the work that took me from there to here.
0: Right. And you might discover answers to the questions you've journaled.
1: That, that happens a lot. And sometimes you don't, which is also good because if we're doing this, right, we're asking
0: Way more
1: questions than we'll uh-huh. ever be able to answer in our answer. lifetime, right. right? So we don't want the students to feel like if you write a question in here, now you gotta find the answer to that, um, because very often the the questions are useful even if you don't answer the question, because what the questions do is they get you more curious, and in the when curiosity. Um what's happening on neurologically is when you get curious about something your brain releases dopamine which is a neurotransmitter that is also highly involved in attention.
0: Nice. And
1: and so that's why you get that kind of lean in thing going on and you're you you stick with something longer when you're curious about it. You're neurochemically priming your brain to lean in.
0: Right. Right.
1: So that's why we're asking all these questions, because very often the, the questions will lead us to more observations and for the scientific process, that's interesting. But even if you never do anything with those questions, those questions are incredibly useful because they will prime your brain to think differently. That's
0: great. Well, we're going to um, wrap it up asking you... Uh, to share with our listeners some of the resources you have. You have a a ton of amazing resources. So I will definitely, everything you say, I will put in the show notes, maybe even more than what you say, but tell our listeners, especially some of the most popular resources that you think would help teachers and parents.
1: Okay, here's something that's really fun. Um, With the uh, Children's Creativity Museum, I made a series of educational videos they're about 10 to 15 minutes long each. They're called the Nature Journal Connection. And what you do is you watch one video one week, and it gives you a little project to do, and you go out and you do that. And then the next week, it's going to build on that. The next week, it's going to build on that. There's a total of 40 of them. So a classroom teacher could do one each week in their with their class. And a homeschool parent could do one whatever sort of unit of time is appropriate for you. And... You by the end of that will be exposed to a really useful suite of visual thinking skills and journaling skills, and will be um, have a, a toolkit that is really useful for a nature journaler.
0: Mm-hmm. I've used those, they're fantastic. Also, real quick, do you recommend that they subscribe to your YouTube channel to get this or go um, to your website? Sure,
1: um, yes, and. Um, okay. <laughs> I guess, you know, the YouTube algorithms, if more people that subscribe, the more that they say, hey, this might be useful for more people. So that helps it get noticed ah. by more people. Um, but I've got them all curated on my website. So if you go to JohnMuirLaws.com, there's a little for teachers area. Under that, you pull it down, you'll see the Nature Journal connection and Bing, you're into that series. Um, also, each week, I host a Um, a discussion a live discussion with nature journal educators around the world we call this the nature journal educators forum and we discuss a different topic each week also each week i teach a live nature um nature journaling class sometimes it's about drawing something um this week i had a special guest on who taught us how to make paper mache birds it was really fun um and uh, I also have an archive that you can get to through my website. There's no paywall for any of this, by the way, um, of hundreds of, uh, of, of of videos and tutorials on drawing birds and different sorts of things. If you like books, um, I wrote a book called How to Teach Nature Journaling, if you're interested in teaching it. That entire book is also available for free as a download from my website. Um, I also um, wrote a book on nature drawing and journaling called Law's Guide to Nature Drawing and Journaling. And it's about nature drawing and journaling.
0: I have that, <laughs> I have that book. It's a great book, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, it's It's got tons of, kids really love that one. You know, it's like, you know, how do you draw beetles? Here's some stuff. What about lizards? Oh, here's some stuff. What about birds? What about a landscape? What about, so it's, you know, how do you draw trees and landscapes and forests and lizards and snakes and squirrels? It's all in there, so that's a lot of fun. Um, and also gives you some really good fundamental skills on being able to draw what kind of comes to your mind. That book emphasizes a lot of the drawing part, Mm -hmm, but I want to say mm -hmm. again that drawing is not, it is a tool in the quiver of a nature journaler, Um, and it is not the, the only thing. One other resource that is absolutely great is we've just started a non-profit organization called the Wild Wonder Foundation to help people everywhere get involved with nature journaling and to kind of keep your own nature journaling or to be able to teach it to others. Um, you can connect with um, mentors and teachers around the world who will help you with your nature journaling through this, uh, through the webpage, through the foundation, wildwonder.org. Um, there is also a... Um, a teachers area in there where we um, we have videos for teachers and 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 downloads and resources of a lot of the materials that are in the How to Teach Nature Journaling book. Sometimes if you see. Uh, if you go to a workshop and somebody does an activity, sure. then we go, we can. It's easy for us to visualize how we do that activity, right? And we because go home when we, do.
0: we learn by imitation, just like you followed and shadowed uh, N- N- Nira. What was her name?
1: Neela Wiley.
0: Neela, you followed Nila. and shadowed because yeah. that's how we learn. We learn by imitating.
1: That's, so um, you yeah. can see videos of teachers teaching these with a group of real students.
0: Now, do yeah. any of these resources, I mean, like the wildwonder.org, is there a paywall there? Is there like nope. a membership? It's all, wow. And then your your Nature Journal Education Foundation, anybody can... Sign up. Is that my like nature a journal webinar? educators
1: forum? Um, yeah, it, you know, some some people on there are classroom teachers, some are homeschool parents, some people are people who might be teaching someday but aren't currently doing that and just want to show up and kind of participate in it. Um, or like, be, be a fly on
0: the wall. Like I just want to come be a fly on the wall. Like and so you there's just... people
1: of all it, it is it is free. All you have to do is you go to my calendar and it says like on this day, that here's the here's the link to the, the forum. You oh. click that button and if you've got a Zoom account, you're in the meeting. And um,
0: and the calendar is on your website?
1: That's on my website.
0: Wow, that's um, great.
1: We've also created now a calendar of events hosted by nature journal educators all over the world. So if you go to the Wild Wonder Foundation and click there on the community calendar, um, you can get something that has my classes on it, and it also lists all of the... Um, all of the, the the classes by by other folks.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and, you do have like the best resources.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure when this uh, podcast is going to come out, um, but um, coming up soon we have a nature journaling conference um, called the Wild Wonder Conference, and in that we have twenty five different. Um, and that will be, uh, that's, that's just in, 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 in one week from our recording here. Um, but we've got 25 different um, presenters who will be giving their skills. Um, you can sign up for that conference. We also have scholarships available to that conference. And also all of the um, presenters and lectures and talks will be recorded and available in a video pass as well.
0: Okay, so if the, this probably will air after the conference, would they be able to access buying yes. the videos after the conference? Absolutely. And then maybe you'll have a conference every year, right?
1: That's that's right. So there's this is I think our fifth annual Wild Wonder conference. You can also okay. get recordings of presentations in in the, in the past ones as well, um, and uh, there are we we bring in some really really interesting speakers and and presenters if you just learned for, if like if you just learned nature journaling from me you would think that the way that i do nature journaling is the right way to do nature journaling the way you're supposed to do nature journaling and a big reason we have all these dif- diverse voices out there is so you see there's so many different ways to go about this right and you can start wherever you are my, my journals tend to have a lot of pictures and drawings in them because i'm dyslexic and Drawing pictures was a way that I could record information without fear of making a spelling mistake. Other people's journals will look different because they're different people. And what you, you when you kind of see all these people um, presenting, you realize like, oh, it can look like all these different things. And this is all really useful,
0: it's useful always-
1: ways of, of, of thinking on paper.
0: Wow. All right. To end our a conversation. I, I, I like to ask my listeners uh, to answer one of two questions. One, is there a quote, and if you don't know it by heart, that's okay, a quote that has had a huge impact on your life? Or what is a book you wish you had read sooner in your life?
1: Oh, both wonderful, wonderful, wonderful questions. Um, I will... I will go with a quote by Mary Oliver. In her poem, The Summer Day, um, she ends this wonderful, beautiful poem with a simple but devastating question. And she asks, she says, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That's good. It, it, it is. And that's yeah. actually, the, 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 in the, the name of our foundation, the Wild Wonder Foundation, the wild is actually a direct reference to that line from Mary Oliver. Wow. What is it you plan to do with your one wild, precious life? And that's, and what's interesting in, in the poem, what is she doing? She is, she's sitting in a field and she's paying attention to a grasshopper she's looking carefully at a grasshopper. And um, it just sort of reminds me of the power and the importance of being present wherever you are and paying attention to this moment is one of the most powerful things we can do to, 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 to honor the gift of this one wild and precious life.
0: Well, that's a perfect way to end this interview. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has really been a treat.
1: I've really enjoyed talking with you, and thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support as the great artist and educator, John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words, this, they will know what it is to see the sky They will know what it is to breathe it, and they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.